With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's up, guys? Welcome in to episode two of the Never Graduate College Sports Podcast. If you missed episode one, make sure to check that one out. I had a blast giving you guys part one of my top 10 win total bets heading into the 2022 season. We talked Oklahoma State. We talked Minnesota. We talked Houston. We talked Arkansas. And we even talked a little TCU to close things out. We went from conference to conference, gave you guys a little SEC talk, a little Big Ten talk, a couple Big 12 teams, even some group of five talk with some AAC coverage with a Houston team that, like I said on that initial episode, I think they could do some big things this year. There's a reason why I talked some group of five football on the very first episode of this show. No, not only do I think that Houston is going to go over nine wins, I do firmly believe that, but I think this is a Houston team that could do some very Cincinnati-like things this year, potentially. I'm not sure if I'm ready to call for a playoff berth yet. Not ready to go that far, but I think that they could make a run to a potentially undefeated season like Cincinnati did last year. So we had a lot of fun with that. Got to preview five different teams for you guys, give you some betting tips to help you pad your wallet a little bit while we were at it. Bet responsibly, of course. And and as you guys know, there are no guarantees when it comes to sports betting, but at your own risk. But I've already made quite a few wagers myself this summer from that list. Just saying, just saying. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. But I've got five more win total best bets to give you guys. Five new teams to preview and talk about. Before we get there, though, since it is only the second episode ever on the Never Graduate podcast, and we are all still getting familiar with each other on here, just a quick reminder that you can follow me on Twitter at, at NoGradPod and at Never Graduate Podcast on Instagram. Like I told you guys on that first episode, this is genuinely a grassroots podcast, which means if this thing is going to grow, if it's going to stick around, if you like what you hear and you want to continue to listen to this content, I need your help. So if you like what you hear and you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to not only give me a follow on those accounts, but also don't be a stranger, man. Like, retweet, share, comment on our social media posts. Spread the word to friends, family, coworkers, anyone and everyone who loves college football and would be into hardcore, in-depth college sports coverage. And if you are feeling extra generous 
and really want to help out, I cannot emphasize enough to you how much a five-star rating and review helps a young podcast like this grow and reach new listeners. So thank you guys for being here today. Number one, yes, thank you for being here today. That's the, the number one thing you can do to support our podcast is just be here and listen, consume the content. But any extra help you can give the podcast along the way, just know that I really do appreciate the support. But let's talk some football. That's what you all came here for today, right? So let's not waste any more of your time. Let's jump right into it. And let's kick this episode off with a bang. I'm not a hot take guy. If that's what you're looking for, you've come to the wrong place. Like I told you guys on that first episode, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think and exactly why I think it. And sometimes... And sometimes what I think might go against the grain a little bit. And I think this pick is one of those situations. Fans of this team are going to roll their eyes, dismiss everything I'm about to say as just some hot take and clickbait type stuff. But that's not what this is. This is something, again, that I truly believe. I'm going to tell you guys exactly what I think. So up first today, we're going to go with the Clemson Tigers. They're over under win total pretty much across the board, whatever book you're looking at, is 10 and a half. I have a lot of respect for the Clemson program. I really do. But if I'm looking at this Clemson team, this 2022 Clemson football team, I'm taking the under all day long, and I'm going to feel really good about it. And I know Clemson fans are going to feel disrespected with this pick. That is certainly not my intention. But I think there are a lot of red flags with this Clemson team. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of reasons to like this Clemson team. I do not think they're going to fall off the face of the earth and come up with a 6-7 win season. That's not what I'm saying. I just don't think this is an 11 or 12 win team in the regular season. I don't think it's that kind of team. And this doesn't mean that I don't think Dabo is a good coach. I think Dabo has been fantastic for that program. In fact, I would go as far as saying I think Dabo Swinney has certainly been one of the better program builders of the past 25 to 30 years. And before Dabo took over, Clemson wasn't an also-ran program, but they clearly weren't elite. They were okay, decent, solid. That's what they were. They were not on the national radar. In fact, at points, they were kind of a laughingstock. They were a team that people like to point and make fun of, even in Dabo's early years. You know, you guys remember the Clemsoning phrase, right? That whole phenomenon. Well, Dabo silenced all that. And he's built Clemson into one of the premier programs in the country. And I still think Clemson's a really, really good football program. But when you're projecting forward to this specific season, let's think about what this Clemson success, what this Clemson program under Dabo what it was built on. Number one, I think the key to all their success has been stability and continuity, particularly when it comes to the coaching staff. Yeah, Chad Morris was the offensive coordinator in the early years, and he left and took a head coaching job. But pretty quickly in Dabo's tenure, he transitioned to Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott. And those guys were the OCs, the co-OCs for a while there. And then Brent Venables comes over from Oklahoma a couple years into Dabo's tenure. He stays for a decade. And that continuity there in the coaching staff, from head coach, coordinator, position coaches, that has been the rock upon which that Clemson program was built. That's where it starts. And then branching out from that, of course, they've had elite quarterback play. I would say even going back to the Taj Boyd years, you kind of started that trend. And then, of course, you land Deshaun Watson. Then you follow that up with Trevor Lawrence. Elite quarterback play kind of has put them over the top. And then you combine the quarterback play with elite skill talent, guys like 
Travis Etienne, Hunter Renfro, DeAndre Hopkins, T. Higgins, Mike Williams, and the list goes on and on and on. Sammy Watkins, right? So they've had a ton of elite skill talent to match with elite quarterback play. And then defensively, they've always had strong, if not elite, defensive line play. Guys like Dexter Lawrence, Cleveland Farrell, Christian Wilkins, now obviously guys like Brian Brissie, Miles Murphy, Tyler Davis, all of those guys. That's been the key to this Clemson run. Stability and continuity coaching staff, elite quarterback play, elite skill talent on offense, strong defensive line. There have been holes in all these Clemson teams. In the secondary at times, the offensive line's never really been dominant, but they've built it in a way that they can withstand some of those holes because, again, if you have elite quarterback play, elite skill talent, you're winning a lot of football games. You have that continuity of the coaching staff. You have a strong defensive line. You can mask some of those deficiencies that Clemson's had over the years. Well, if you look at 2022, what do they have coming back in terms of those four elements that have allowed them to become one of the elite programs in all of America? Well, number one is out the window. Stability and continuity. Clemson has never had to deal with this type of change, this type of transition all in one year in Dabo's entire tenure. That's going to be a new challenge to them. Hey, maybe it's no problem for them. Maybe it's just a breeze and there's no bumps in the road. Maybe. But you got to think, I mean, there's going to be some transition there. Even if you are hiring from within, which they have done, there's going to be a transition period. Obviously, Dabo is still there, and that certainly matters. I mean, he is the head man, but he's more of a CEO type head coach. He's not intimately involved in the play calling offensively and defensively, the game playing there. He has his fingers in that. He's aware of what's going on, but that's never really been his forte. He's never been a play caller. He's never even a coordinator before he became the head coach. So when Jeff Scott moves on to UCF a couple years ago, and now Tony Elliott moves on to Virginia, Brent Venables takes the Oklahoma job, and you're promoting from within, sure, but Wes Godwin never called plays defensively in his life. Brandon Streeter never called plays offensively in his entire life. And it's both sides of the ball. It's not just defense. You're not just replacing Brent Venables. You're replacing both coordinators in the same season. With guys that know the program, which is why Dabo hired from within, he understands how important continuity has been to that program. But again, neither guy has ever been the one calling plays. It's never been the dude that's running the offense and running the defense. And I think that does matter. And then the second element, elite quarterback play, that's a distant memory. I mean, DJ Uwe Ungalale, for all the hype that he came in with, and he looked really good in spot duty in two starts since Boston College, Notre Dame in 2020. But last season, when we got a much larger sample size, an entire season of play, when he was the guy from week one, he was absolutely dreadful. 55% completion percentage, six yards per attempt, more interceptions than touchdowns, nine touchdowns to 10 interceptions, dead last in yards per attempt, dead last in quarterback rating in the ACC, and 11th out of the top 12 quarterbacks in the league in completion percentage. That is who their quarterback was last year, and that is the guy, DJ Ungale, that they are bringing back in 2022. That's the guy that's supposed to quarterback a team to a playoff bid and 11 or more wins in 2022. That's the guy that's supposed to do that? I'm supposed to put my faith in that guy? I don't know, man. I mean, you do you, Clemson fans, but not me. I'm not putting my faith in that guy. I kept waiting for him to turn it around last year. And it just never happened. It absolutely never happened. I think Georgia broke him in that first game with all the pressure they put on him and that poor performance on the national stage. 
kind of just snowballed and it just got out of hand as the season went on. Mechanically, he was all over the place. He was out of shape. He was too big. He was more mobile in 2020, but last year he added a little too much weight and he just didn't move as well as he did in a couple of starts back in 2020. I mean, it got to the point where Clemson was just not even trying to throw the football late this season. That's how bad it got. And then if DJ Uyunglele cannot turn it around and they have to make a move, well, their backup option is a true freshman. Now, a highly touted true freshman that Clemson fans are rightfully so very excited about in Cade Klubnik, but he is a true freshman, guys. It is very rare that a true freshman, as talented as he might be, is able to come in and lead a team to a conference championship and 11 or 12 wins along the way. That's just a lot to ask, and I think those are unreasonable expectations for a true freshman, no matter how talented he is, no matter how hyped he is coming out of high school. So I think that has to be a major concern for Clemson in 2022. In fact, probably the major concern for Clemson coming into this next season. And then on top of that, where's your elite skill talent, especially at the receiver position? Because Clemson's always had elite receiver play to go along with elite quarterback play. And that's one of the things that's made them so dynamic over the years. But who are those guys on this Clemson team? Who are they? I mean, of all the guys they've got coming back, they, none of them have ever even had 500 yards receiving on a year. Bo Collins is a talented young guy, and I think he could be really good. He, he did some nice things for him last year late in the season, but he hasn't shown that he's elite. I know Ngata is the guy, Joseph Ngata is the one that they're hoping can be that guy, but again, he's never even had 500 yards in his career. Two seasons, under 500 yards both years. A talented player, but is he an elite number one alpha male wide receiver? Maybe he can grow into that, but we have seen no evidence to suggest he is that kind of guy to this point in his career. EJ Williams is the guy that I will look at as the one with the most upside. He's a really talented player, but he hasn't done it through his first two years. He's had some moments, especially as a true freshman, but he hasn't been that guy. And He's the guy I think can maybe turn on and become that number one receiver, but I haven't seen it from him either. And they're really missing the slot wide receiver. They've been missing that for a couple of years. You know, the Hunter Renfro, the Adam Humphreys type guy, the Amari Rogers type guy. When Clemson has had their best offenses, their most dynamic offenses, they've had that slot guy to just slice up defenses with option routes, slot fades, all that stuff that's become so difficult to stop in modern football. And right now, I don't know who that guy is going to be for them this season. They didn't have that guy last year, and that was certainly one of their issues, along with just having horrific quarterback play. But they need to get back to finding that guy. Maybe Brandon Spector can be that guy. He kind of fits that mold, but he was hurt most of last year. We'll see. I don't know, but they need to find that answer at the slot because that's been a key part of their offense. So their passing game was a nightmare last season. And not only did that obviously that make it difficult for them to hurt teams through the air, but it also made it more difficult for them to run the football. Clemson's had a good rushing attack over the years, but that rushing attack has been strong not because of their offensive line, but because of their ability to hurt you through the air. Defenses were put in conflict. What do you do personnel-wise? Do you load up with heavier personnel? Do you stack the box? Because if you do that, then Clemson has the receivers and quarterback play to absolutely carve you up in the passing game. Well, if you sit back and you just play coverage, well, then they're good enough with the running backs and they have the numbers advantage of the box. So guys like Travis Etienne, the ACC's all-time leading rusher, that they're going to carve you up with the ground game. Well, the problem for them last year is that when the passing game was not working for them, their offensive line got exposed because their offensive line really in Dabo's entire tenure has been a weakness, but they've been able to mask it with their elite skill play. 
But when you don't have the elite skill play and you can't throw the football and then you have to lean on the run game, you have to rely on your offensive line to get movement and create running lanes against more stacked boxes because defenses don't have to respect the pass as much. Well, that's going to be a problem when you're Clemson and you haven't recruited as well along the offensive line and you refuse to go to the transfer portal to address some of those deficiencies. I mean, it was as early as week one, Georgia absolutely exposed that Clemson offensive line for what they were. And once everyone else saw that, they saw that Clemson wasn't going to be able to throw the football. It became really, really difficult for Clemson to do anything offensively. And I don't know why anyone would expect that to change this year. What did you see from that Clemson offense? especially DJU. What did you see from them to expect that to change this season? Sure, they're going to make some adjustments with a new coordinator that had the entire offseason to try to address some of those issues, and they'll, they'll have some wrinkles, they'll adjust some things here and there. But when it comes down to it, it's about personnel more than anything. What did you see from a personnel standpoint from that Clemson offense last year to excite you and make you think that things are going to dramatically change in one year with this with largely the same personnel? I do like Will Shipley and Kobe Pace at running back. I think that's a really good one-two punch. I think Shipley's a talented guy, especially as a receiver out of the backfield. But again, when you have an average at best offensive line and you have an anemic passing game, it's going to be really difficult to get those talented running backs going. I mean, Will Shipley, I think is a really talented guy. But in the ACC alone, among running backs who had at least 100 carries last year, he ranked 12th in the ACC in yards per carry. But all in all, I just don't think Clemson, at least what we've seen from these guys, has what I would classify as elite skill talent in 2022. They have good skill talent. They're not terrible players. They're good players, but they have not shown to be elite. So continuity, nope. Elite quarterback play, Hell no. Elite skill talent? Nope. So what does that leave us with? Elite defensive line play. Do they have that in 2022? Yes. Check. Absolutely. That's the one thing, the one saving grace for this Clemson team this year. That's the one thing on this team, offense and defense, that you can point at and say with confidence, yeah, that's an elite unit. And it might be the best defensive line unit in the entire country. That's certainly possible. You're talking about guys like Brian Brissee, Tyler Davis, if he's back fully healthy, You've got Xavier Thomas, KJ Henry's back for, I think feel like he's been back for like seven or eight years. I know it's not been that long, but he's one of those guys you feel like he's been around forever. You got Miles Murphy on the edge there. I mean, they're so deep and so good on the defensive line that KJ Henry's coming off the bench, guys. He would start for, I would say, 90 to 95% of the teams in America. He's that good. And the Clemson defense was awesome last year too. As bad as their offense was, their defense was that good. They were third nationally in yards per play allowed. They were second nationally behind Georgia, one of the best defenses that we've seen in a long, long time in scoring defense. They were that good on defense last year. But here's the thing. They were that good on defense last year, and they still lost three games in the regular season. Brian Brissie, I know he got hurt at one point later in the year, but he was there for most of the year. Miles Murphy, Xavier Thomas, all those guys were there last year. I know they dealt with some injuries, but so did everybody. And they still lost three games. And they're losing some key pieces off that defense. Most of the defensive line returns intact, which is going to be huge for them. But it's not as though they're not losing anyone. James Skowski, Balen Spector at inside linebacker. Skowski certainly was not the most talented player to ever play the position, but he was the heartbeat of that defense. I mean, he was the leader and the alpha of that defense. Balen Spector, I think, was more talented than Skowski. Really good linebacker in his own right. Losing a guy like Nolan Turner. Again, I know he was hurt for portions of last year. Andrew Booth, who was a high draft pick in the NFL draft this past year. They are losing some key players off that defense that just didn't happen to play on the defensive line. 
and it's going to be tough to replace him. Clemson has been recruiting well, but they don't recruit at an elite level. I, I, that's a misconception. People think that Clemson's like one of the recruiting superpowers in the country, and I would argue that they are not. They recruit really well, but I don't think that they recruit at what I categorize as an elite level. To me, an elite level is you are in the top five every single year, and that list is pretty small. You've got Bama, you've got Georgia, you've got Ohio State typically, now you've got Texas A&M. Texas is starting to jump up into that fold, but Clemson is not really there. They, they have recruited in the top five at times in random years. They'll have a top three, a top five class here and there, but then the next year they're followed up like a top 15 class, like number 14, number 12, something like that. And if you look at the last four years, so basically their entire roster worth of players, four recruiting cycles, they've averaged finishing with the eight and a half ranked recruiting class in the country, which is still really, really good. They are a top recruiting team in the country. They are a top 10 recruiting team in the country, maybe even a top five here and there occasionally. But year in, year out, they're not a top five recruiting power like Alabama, like Georgia, like Ohio State is. The perception out there is that they are that because they have had some high-profile recruiting wins. Guys like Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence, Brian Brzee, Miles Murphy, they've landed some top five stars and they've been really top-heavy, but they don't consistently recruit at a top five level. Now, they do have some good players that are waiting the wings. I think Barrett Carter is a guy from North Gwinnett here in Georgia who is a really talented player and has had his moments for Clemson, but he's a little undersized and I haven't seen it from him yet that he can be that guy. Maybe he shows us that this year, but at this point, I haven't seen it from him. Trenton Simpson, at outside linebacker, is the guy that I really, really like. I think that guy has the chance to be an elite player. He can rush the passer. He can defend the run. He can fill against the run. He can play in coverage, play in space. I like him a lot. He's very athletic. I think he might be a guy that breaks out for Clemson this year and maybe fills some of those holes at the second and third level. But there are still some key pieces they have to replace at those second and third levels, and we'll see if they're the answers. I don't know. I mean, they, they recruit well, so they've got some guys that I know they feel good about, but are they ready to do it out there on the field of play? I think that remains to be seen. But back to my original point, we've gone through it now. So out of the four things that I've identified as what the Clemson program was built on, they check one of those boxes, elite defensive line play. And I'm supposed to feel good about this Clemson team winning 11 or 12 games? I just don't see it, guys. Now, the schedule does help them. There's no Georgia on the schedule this year. But there are a number of games that I have identified as losable for Clemson. Will they lose all of them? Absolutely not. It's still a really good football team. But there are a number of games I think they could lose. At Wake Forest, that is a losable game. I think Clemson probably wins that game if I had to predict it right now. But it's certainly a losable game with all that Wake Forest returns on offense. Sam Hartman, A.T. Perry, Donovan Green's coming back after missing all of last year. So Wake is going to be dynamic offensively. The Wake defense, that's an entirely different story. Clemson, you would think Clemson would be able to score on that defense because everybody can score on that defense. But again, Clemson's offense, flat out anemic last year. And I really don't see reasons for a lot of optimism moving into 2022. Like I know Clemson fans do, and that's what fans do, guys. Fans believe. That's what fans do, especially in the offseason. Hope springs a turnover in the offseason. And you think that your team has a chance to fix all the issues from last year. And then the season hits and... Sometimes it can be a pretty rude awakening. I think that might happen to some Clemson fans 
who think things are just going to magically change on offense this year with the same quarterback who was one of the worst, if not the worst quarterbacks in the ACC last year, a brand new offensive coordinator who's never called plays before in his life, no surefire alpha males at wide receiver, an average at best offensive line. I just don't see it. So the weight game, absolutely losable. I think Clemson probably wins, but it's certainly losable. Then you got NC State. Now, Clemson is very fortunate they get this game at home. They lost to NC State in overtime. They lost to NC State last year in Raleigh. This one's in Death Valley. That's going to be a really tough game for NC State to win. We'll get to NC State a little bit later on today. In fact, we might get to them next. A little teaser there for you. I think NC State is better than Clemson this year. I'm not saying I think the NC State program is better than the Clemson program. I think the 2022 NC State team is going to be better than the 2022 Clemson team. That's my opinion. But it's tough, man. It's really tough to win in Death Valley. I, Man, I want to give Clemson the edge there because the home field advantage is real. I've been to a game. I've When Georgia played Clemson, what was that back in 2013, I want to say? That's a tough place to play, especially for a big-time game like the NC State game is going to be. But that's still a very losable game for Clemson this year. At Boston College, you might not think that's a losable game, but Phil Jerkovic is back this year. Zay Flowers is back at receiver. It's a great one-two punch quarterback and receiver combination there. Jerkovic missed large portions of last year with injury. If he can stay healthy, that's a sneaky game for Clemson. BC has already announced that's going to be their annual red bandana game. So I think Clemson's better. They should win that game. But if we're talking about losable games, that's a losable game. At Florida State, I know you're shaking your head saying, come on, Tyler, Florida State, give me a break. At Florida State, this was in Death Valley. I would not put this on the list, but it's in Tallahassee. It's in Doak Campbell. I do think Florida State will be improved this year. I think Clemson will have a better team. They have a more talented team. But I actually think Florida State has the better quarterback. I think Jordan Travis, he really came on towards the end of last year. When he was healthy, the Florida State offense was far better last year. And that's a measuring stick game for the Florida State program. Their fans are going to be hyped up. The players are going to be hyped up. And that can be a tough spot for Clemson to go into. And late in the season, Clemson has to go to Notre Dame. And then they host Miami very late in the season. Both those games are very losable games. And look, I still think Clemson is going to be good. As I said earlier, I think they're going to be good. I'm not saying this is a 6-6, six and 7-5, six, even 8-4 and four Clemson team. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. Because this is the ACC we're talking about. And they get two of their more difficult ACC games, NC State and Miami. Probably their two most difficult ACC games. They get both of those games at home, which gives me some pause. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm remembering this correctly, Clemson has not lost a home game since they lost to Pitt in November of 2016. So that is certainly an advantage for Clemson this season. That gives me a little bit of pause there. But again, I do think NC State is better than Clemson this year. I think Notre Dame is going to be a very difficult game for them to get. And they could trip up at any of those other spots. So let's say if NC State beats them at home, which that's going to be tough, but I think NC State's better. If they lose at Notre Dame, then they've got to lose one more game at Wake, at Boston College, at Florida State, Miami at home. Got to trip up one more time. And unless DJ Uwe Ungle takes a huge step, I see Clemson as a 9-3 and team this year. And the thing is, you don't even need them to go 9-3 and for this bet to hit. You just need them to go 10-2. and It's under 10.5. So let's, let's say they beat NC State. Let's give them that win. Let's say they lose Notre Dame. All you need them to do is lose one more time out of that group of games that I mentioned at Wake, at Boston College, at Florida State, Miami at home. 
I think that's very likely to happen. Again, I think they're nine and three. I think this bet clears easily. I might have just lost all Clemson fans moving into the future. None of them will probably ever listen to this show ever again, but I'm just trying to be real with you guys. And right now, for all the reasons I laid out, I just don't see Clemson going over 10 and a half wins. I don't see this as an 11 or 12 win football team in 2022. All right, next up, let's stick in the ACC. I mentioned NC State. I teased them a little bit. Let's go ahead and get right to the NC State Wolfpack. They're over under win total pretty much across the board, whatever book you're looking at, is at eight and a half. I think this, along with Arkansas at six and a half, is the easiest money that you can make with these win total bets in the preseason. I think it's a no-brainer over bet. Now, you're going to have to shop around a little bit to get the best odds. It's heavily juiced to the over, but this is one of those bets that I have already put my hard-earned money on, and I feel really good about this one. I feel like this win total is just stealing money. I stole money on NC State last year. I took them at over six wins back in May of 2021, and I hit that the first week of November. Vegas has caught on a little bit to NC State and pushed it up to eight and a half this season. And yeah, it's heavily juiced to the over, but I still think there is value there because, again, I think this is stealing money. I got them back at minus 140 in May. If you shop around a little bit, you can probably still find those odds somewhere, but that's what I got it at back in May. And I really love this NC State team for a lot of reasons. And one of those reasons is that NC State is one of those seven teams to finish inside the top 50 of the 2021 S&P Plus rankings at the end of the season and also rank inside the top 30 in returning production going into 2022. They ended last season at number 14 in the S&P Plus and they entered 2022 with the 12th ranked returning production in the country. And on top of that, this is another stat from Stats of War on Twitter. You guys can give him a follow. He's a great follow on on social media if you're into college football. But they are one of 21 teams returning their head coach, quarterback, and both coordinators. I'm huge on continuity coming into the season, especially when you have a lot of talent. It's supposed to be a season you've built to. That continuity is very, very important. They were better than Clemson last year, as evidenced by the fact that they beat Clemson last year. And they return 81% of that production, including quarterback Devin Leary, who took a huge step forward last year. He's always been a a guy that had a lot of potential. that You could see him becoming that kind of quarterback. But last year, he became that guy. He threw for 3,500 yards, 35 touchdowns to only five interceptions. They returned two of their top three wide receivers. They lose to Mecca Mezzi, but they got Thayer Thomas coming back. got Devin Carter coming back, who I believe will grow into their number one receiver this year. And they returned 10 starters on defense, including all three inside linebackers who were all studs. They're all NFL players, Drake Thomas, Isaiah Moore, and Peyton Wilson. Isaiah Moore and Peyton Wilson missed large portions of last year. Peyton Wilson missed almost the entire year with a shoulder injury. Isaiah Moore tore his ACL. They are both coming back this year. Drake Thomas was a dude for them in the middle of that defense last year, especially in the absence of Moore and Wilson. All three of those guys are back. Now, as I mentioned earlier with Clemson, Clemson has not lost a home game since they lost to Pitt in November of 2016. Part of that is a function of the schedule because the fact is they play in the ACC and the ACC is just not as strong of a conference as the SEC and the Big Ten, even the Big 12 at times on a year-in, year-out basis. And some of the the traditional powers in the ACC have been down. Florida State's been down. Miami's been down. Virginia Tech's been down. So that's certainly part of why they have had this very long home winning streak. But 
nonetheless, it's still very, very impressive. And I, I can attest, guys, from a personal standpoint, I've been there. It is a tough place to play. So it's going to be an incredibly difficult challenge for NC State to go into Death Valley and win that football game. But as I've said a couple times now today, I think NC State is a better football team, not a better football program. There's a difference. I'm talking about this one isolated season, these two teams. I think NC State this season is going to be a better football team. They are better at quarterback. They are better at wide receiver. At least they're more proven at wide receiver. They are better at inside linebacker. They are better in the secondary. Clemson certainly has the edge on the defensive line, but the NC State defensive line is legit too. Guys like C.J. Clark, Corey Durden, those are really good players. Not the level that Clemson has, but they're good players in their own right. And on top of that, NC State has five super seniors on defense, guys. I believe that matters. That kind of experience. Also, those guys are like 24, 25 years old. I think that matters. And their defense, the NC State defense, was top 15 nationally in scoring defense and top 16 nationally in yards per play allowed last year, despite an overwhelming rash of injuries. Again, Peyton Wilson, Isaiah Moore, CJ Clark, Savion Jackson, Tyler Baker Williams, Cyrus Fagan, Devin Boykin, the list goes on. All of those guys who were big time players, them important pieces for them, missed large portions of the season. So how good can they be now this year now that everyone is back and healthy? And they were top 20 last year in scoring defense and yards per play allowed. Now everyone is back healthy. What's the ceiling for this defense? Can they be a top five defense? I don't think that's out of the question. I really don't think that's out of the question. But even if they don't beat Clemson, I think they're going to go in there and beat Clemson. I understand that I'm taking a leap of faith there. And that's a, that's a huge step for NC State to go into Death Valley and win a football game. But even if they don't beat Clemson, they have to lose three more games to go under eight and a half wins. Where are those three games? Where are those three losses? I'm not seeing them. I mean, look at the schedule. What are the losable games? Texas Tech? I mean, it's at home. No, I don't think Texas Tech is a game they're going to lose, but is it losable? It's a Power 5 non-con opponent, so I guess by definition it's losable. I don't see them losing it, but I guess it goes on the list. Florida State at home, I think they're a lot better than Florida State, but Florida State's got some talent. I guess that's a losable game. Wake at home, that's a losable game. They lost to Wake last year. It was a, a hell of a game. It was a fun game to watch. They lost that game. At Louisville, I think Louisville could be a sneaky good team this year and on the road. That could be a losable game. At North Carolina, it's another really fun game from last year. That absolutely could be a losable game as well. But the thing is, I think NC State is better than every single one of those teams that I just listed off. I think 9-3 and three is the floor for this team with an 11-1 season probably being the ceiling. I don't see them as an undefeated type team. I don't think they're quite that level of team, but I could see them going 11-1 as the ceiling. I think 9-3 is the floor with all they have returning. Key pieces on offense, quarterback, receivers, defense is loaded. Basically, everybody coming back off of a top 15 caliber defense last year that dealt with a lot of injuries. I think this NC State team has a really good chance to win the entire ACC. And this is absolutely one of those preseason win total bets that I feel really confident in. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. Cybersecurity declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Okay, for our next pair of teams, let's go out west. I don't think we've talked about any West Coast teams yet on this podcast. And that's a shame because they play some really fun football out there. So let's change that and let's go with two West Coast teams, one Pac-12 team and one independent team here with my next two picks. And let's start with BYU. Let's go independent first. Let's go BYU. Their win total at Caesars is currently at seven and a half. And this is another one that I have already put a significant but responsible wager on. I feel good about this one. I've got BYU going over seven and a half wins on the season. I do recognize that the schedule is not exactly easy, and there are absolutely some landmines thrown in there. But I've got this team going nine and three, and I think that's actually pretty conservative. I think BYU has the ability to potentially go 10 and 2 or maybe even 11 and 1 if a lot of things bounce their way and Jaron Hall takes a massive step forward and has like a Zach Wilson type year. We'll get into all that here in a second, but I think this is a team that's 9 and 3 minimum in in my book. That's how I see them going in 2022. So why am I so high on the Cougars? Why am I so high on BYU going into this season? Well, let's start here. They are number 2 in the country in returning production off of a team that went 10 and 3 a year ago. So Basically, everybody's back from a 10-win team a year ago. They are also one of those seven teams that finished 2021 inside the top 50 of the final S&P Plus rankings and are top 30 in returning production. And they are also another team on Stats of War's list of 21 teams that are returning their head coach, quarterback, and both coordinators. And then not only are they number two overall in returning production, they are number one in returning defensive production. They return 97% of their defensive production from 2021, and they return 80% of their offensive production. Now, their defense was not great last year. They were slightly above average, but they, they were not a great defense. But when you return that much of your production, and they, like a lot of teams, dealt with some injuries last year, 
I believe this BYU defense can take a step forward. I haven't seen anything from their defense to suggest they're going to be an elite defense. I think that if they can jump into the top 30, top 35, even top 40, I mean, they were 80th nationally in yards per play allowed. So if they can get inside the top 40, I think with what they have returning offensively, that this can be a really, really dangerous football team. So what do they return on offense? Number one, they return Jaron Hall at quarterback, who has flat out dynamic potential. I'm not saying he's Zach Wilson, but he kind of reminds me of Zach Wilson before Wilson blew up in 2020. You know, go back to Zach Wilson's freshman and sophomore seasons at BYU. And when I would watch him play, I saw a guy that was highly talented and had a ton of potential, very high ceiling, but he was up and down. He was inconsistent. But when you watched him play, you saw the tools and you're like, man, if you could just figure it out, this guy could be really, really good. Now, I'm not saying I saw him becoming a top 10 overall pick in the NFL draft, but I thought he could be a really good quarterback. And I see a lot of similarities with Jaron Hall. When I watched Jaron Hall play last year, it was his first year as a starter. I was saying a lot of the same things about him that I was saying about Zach Wilson his first couple years as a starter. I was saying, man, he's inconsistent, but you can see the dynamic potential. He's a dual threat guy that can hurt you with his legs. He can also hurt you with his arm. I mean, he took off against Baylor last year and was like a 75-yard touchdown run, something like that, and just left those guys in the dust. He's got the skill set. He's got the tools. He just has to become more consistent and take that next step. Now, is he going to take that next step? That remains to be seen. I don't know, but he was actually better last year than I think Wilson was in his first couple years as a starter. I I think he clearly was. He just didn't play at the level of like junior version of Zach Wilson. And if he takes a step and comes anywhere close to that this year, I'm not saying he has to be that, but if he's anything close to that, BYU could be a very dangerous team because they do also return their top two receivers from last year in Puka Nakua and Gunnar Romney. They have four offensive linemen returning with starting experience. They get Isaac Rex back at tight end who wasn't used a ton of the passing game, but when he was, I felt like he was a weapon. I think that's a guy that you need to find a way to get the ball to more consistently in the passing games. I think he's a guy that can hurt you. Now, the one big loss offensively is a huge loss for them. That's Tyler Algier. He was the dominant part of their offense. I mean, they just handed that guy the ball and he just bowled over people. It wasn't overly fast or overly dynamic in terms of, of making people miss in space and, and breaking off long runs, but that dude just bit off chunks of yardage and he was just a warrior for them. He's gone. But as I said on the first episode, running backs I don't worry about replacing as much as I do quarterbacks and receivers. They are just far more replaceable. That's been proven whether it's at the college level or the NFL level. They're far more replaceable than an elite quarterback or an elite receiver. And if Jaron Hall takes that step as a passer this year, they're not going to have to rely on the ground game as much as they did last year. And honestly, the fact that Jaron Hall himself is a threat to run the football, that makes the job of a running back far easier in the BYU system because defenses have to account for the quarterback run game. They can block defenders or take defenders out of the play without actually having to block them, without actually having to dedicate blockers to them. You can option off of guys. And that dual threat ability when you run zone read, when you run bash and all sorts of different things that you can run offensive with a dual threat quarterback, it just creates numbers advantage in the box for your offense. And that clears out more space for whoever your running back is for them to operate. So when you have that dual threat quarterback, it just kind of mitigates the loss of a guy like Tyler Algier, no matter how good he was. He was fantastic for them last year.
But let's go to the schedule. I think it's important to look at the schedule with all these teams, especially when talking about BYU, because it is a difficult schedule. But I do think it's important to also point out that BYU had a difficult schedule last year as well, and they still managed to find a way to get to 10 wins. They played Utah last year. They beat them, played Arizona State, played at Utah State, which was a 12-win team last year, if I remember correctly. They played Boise. They played at Baylor, at Washington State, at Virginia, at USC. It's an independent team that's finding its way to play all of these teams. They really challenged themselves. And with that difficult schedule, they still found a way to go 10-3 and a year ago. So even though this schedule is difficult, it would not be unprecedented for them to win nine or 10 games with this schedule. So we've got to get to eight wins. Let's start at the top here. I've got them winning their first game of the year at USF. It's on the road. USF, you know, it could be a tricky spot, but they are better than UCF. They should win that football game. I've got them definitely beating Wyoming at home. Utah State was a good football team last year. It's at BYU. I've got BYU winning that game as well. That's three games. I've got them winning at Liberty without Malik Willis. I don't see Liberty being as good as they have been the past couple of years. That's four wins right there. East Carolina at home. I got that as a, as a win. Utah Tech is definitely a win. That's six wins right there. Those are six games that I feel very confident sitting here on July 3rd saying that BYU is going to win those football games. So that means they've only got to get two more games to go over seven and a half. And here's the thing about BYU. I will admit this schedule is difficult. I'm about to get into the difficult part here in just a second. But I don't think there are any guaranteed losses. Games that I look at here in the preseason in July and point out and say, yeah, that's a loss. I don't see those games. I see all these as toss-up swing games. You've got Baylor coming to Provo. Baylor could win that game. BYU could win that football game. That is the definition of a toss-up game. It was a great game last year. In fact, I just went back and rewatched that a couple weekends ago. That was a great football game. Then you've got at Oregon week three. That's a tough game playing at Austin Stadium, but it's still early in the season. That's still Dan Lanning in his first year as a head coach trying to find his way as a head coach. Bo Nix probably been their starting quarterback trying to figure out how to utilize him in a new offensive system, trying to figure out who their playmakers are going to be. I would imagine Oregon would be a slight favorite going into that game, but that's a game that BYU could win. I don't think that's a guarantee loss. I think that's a toss-up game. Then you've got Notre Dame in Vegas at a neutral site. Notre Dame's going to be a really good football team, guys, but it's at a neutral site. That happens to be far closer to BYU's campus than it does the Notre Dame campus. Of course, there'll be a lot of Notre Dame fans there. They have a great fan base. They travel well. It'll be a great environment, but that's not a guaranteed loss. That is 100% a toss-up game. You got Arkansas coming to Provo. If you can listen to the first episode, you know that I'm very high on Arkansas, at least high on them going over six and a half. But I also said in that episode that I have them losing at BYU. But this is a game that Arkansas could also win. That's another toss-up game. You got at Boise State. Boise has not been as good the past couple of years. It's still a good football team, and it's on the blue turf. It's at Boise. That's going to be a tough game, but that's a game BYU could win and honestly probably should win with their town advantage and what they returned this year, but we'll call it a toss-up game. And at the end of the year, I, I'm having trouble calling this a toss-up game. Stanford was, if you look at their numbers last year, guys, they were one of the worst teams in all of Power 5 football. They were minus 1,800 total yards on the year. What that means is they were outgained by their opponents by 1,800 yards. That is literally worse than Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt was minus 1,700 yards last year. That's how bad Stanford was. Stanford has not been good for a while. The magic has worn off there in Palo Alto. 
I think Tanner McKee is a, a good quarterback, and he's probably going to do some good things for them this year, but their defense has just completely fallen off. Those best Stanford teams years ago, they were really good defensively. Guys, they were 115th nationally in yards per play allowed. They were terrible on that side of the ball, and they couldn't move the ball to save their life. So yeah, I do have a hard time calling this a toss-up game. I think, honestly, I'm very close to saying this is a, a win for BYU, but it's on the road. It's at Stanford's at the end of the year. I do think that Tanner McKee is a good player. So just to be conservative here, we'll call that a toss-up game. So that's six toss-up games. It's evenly split between home and road games, three at home, three on the road. I've already given them six wins that I feel pretty confident in giving them right now. So in those six toss-up games, all they've got to do is go two and four. They get three of those at home. I think they go far better than two and four in that group of games. I think they could easily go four and two in that group of toss-up games. At Boise State and at Stanford would be the two toss-up games that I feel probably best about giving them. I think they can beat Arkansas at home as well. Heck, I think they can beat Baylor. I know Baylor was really good last year. That was a tight game in Waco. BYU returns a lot more than Baylor does, so I think they can win that game. I think they're going to go 3-3 three and three minimum in those toss-up games, more like 4-2 and two if you ask me. So I think they clear 7.5 easily. I love this bet. Okay, let's move on and let's stay on the West Coast. Let's actually go to a Pac-12 school and not just any Pac-12 school, the defending Pac-12 champion and mortal enemy of the BYU Cougars, which of course is the Utes of Utah. And this win total, again, pretty much across the board, is at eight and a half. And it's kind of freaking me out, man. What do I not know? You ever see those bets? You see those lines that come out and you're like, whoa, like this, this is too good to be true. What does Vegas know that I don't know? That happens to me quite often. And this is one of those instances in the preseason. What does Vegas know that I do not know? Why is this win total only eight and a half? I feel like this is easy money. I'm taking the over all day, every day. In fact, I've already taken the over in this one. Utah is going over eight and a half wins. I honestly don't see how they fall below nine wins. I just don't see it. They're not playing BYU this year, so you don't have that non-conference game or independent game there that, that you lost last year. They lost a couple games early non-conference last year that hurt them, but they were really good in Pac-12 play. This is a team that ended up going 10-4 and four as a Rose Bowl team that had... Ohio State on the ropes and then just let them off the hook and Ohio State came back and Jackson Jackson Smith and Jigba went for almost 350 in that game. Just crazy stuff. Setting record after record after record in that Rose Bowl game. It's a hell of a lot of fun to watch, that's for sure. But when you're looking at Utah, I mean, you know, they don't return as much as BYU. They do not. BYU returns about as much as anybody in the country. But they do return a ton of key pieces on offense. Cam Rising at quarterback, this is officially his team. You know, he did not start last year as their number one option. He was not QB1. It was Charlie Brew, the transfer from Baylor, who won that job in the preseason. But Cam Rising was still voted a captain, even though he lost that job in, in the preseason, which I think goes a long way in showing you exactly what kind of guy he is and what kind of leader he is and how his teammates and the coaching staff feels about him. But Brewer faltered early in the season, and they gave Cam Rising a shot. He was a guy that actually committed to Texas originally, transferred from Texas is at Utah, and he took full advantage of it, and he became the guy very quickly. Charlie Brewer like left the team. It was weird, but it became Cam Rising's team a couple games in the season. But last offseason, that wasn't the case. He wasn't the clear guy coming into the season. 
This year, however, he is. And I think that matters. It's kind of like Stetson Bennett for Georgia. Stetson Bennett was not even in the conversation to be Georgia's quarterback coming into 2021. But now he has entire offseason to be the guy, to be the leader, to get all those reps, which is also really, really important for your development. So I fully expect Stetson Bennett to be improved this year. And I think you can say the same for Cam Rising. But it's not just Cam Rising on offense. Tavion Thomas, who was a dude at running back last year, I loved watching this guy play. He was an 1,100-yard rusher, 21 touchdowns. And in the passing game, they returned both of their tight ends, two stud tight ends. Both these guys contemplated making the jump to the NFL, but at the end of the day, they decided to come back to college. So Brent Keithy and Dalton Kincaid are both back. They combined for over 1,100 yards and 14 touchdowns. Keithy was more of a threat in the passing game than Kincaid, but they are both threats. They can, and they're, they're, they're dual threat guys. I know that's weird to say about a tight end, but they are. Guys can actually block in line. They can go out and play in space and hurt you in the passing game. Both of those guys can do that. They both have NFL futures or likely have NFL futures, but they both decide to come back. So those are some really strong pieces to return with this offense. Now, they are losing some important pieces on defense. Probably their two best players, Devin Lloyd and Nephi Sewell at inside linebacker, but they got a good transfer from Florida. Malamu Diabite, uh, comes in from Florida as an inside linebacker. He'll almost certainly be one of the starters there. He's a talented guy. He's a little light in the britches for my liking, but he's athletic. He moves well. He can play in space, which is really what you need your linebacker to do more than anything these days anyway. So that's not as big of a deal being a little lighter in the britches like he is. So I'm not going to say he's going to be as good as Devin Lloyd. He's not going to be, but he's going to be a good player for them in the middle of that defense. They do lose two, they are, they're returning two stars at cornerback, sorry, and they also get Cole Bishop back, who was a, a true freshman last year, I thought he was really good as a true freshman, in fact, one of the better freshman DBs in the country, I'm expecting big things at safety from him this year, I know the coaching staff loves him there, but what I love most about Utah is the culture, and this is why I'm confident in this bet, they know who they are, they are a physical hard-nosed, tough, muck-the-game-up type team. It's established. That's their identity. That's who they are. They recruit to it, and they have so much stability there with Kyle Whittingham. I said a lot of the same things about Minnesota on the first episode, but I'm saying the same things about Utah because they are the same type of program. They don't recruit at an extraordinary high level. They're not in it for big time four or five star prospects, but that doesn't really necessarily matter for them. Would they want those kind of guys? Obviously, who doesn't? But they don't have to have those type of recruits in order to succeed, in order to win football games, in order to win conference championships like they did last year because they have a system. They have a culture and they know what they are. They know who they are and they recruit those kind of guys. And I have a lot of respect for programs that have that self-awareness. They are also, here's another team to add to the list. This is a Stats of War, his stat on Twitter. They are another one of the 21 teams returning their head coach, the quarterback, and both coordinators. And as I've said several times across the, the course of this past week on both these episodes, I think that matters. And then if you Look at the schedule. I mean, clearly Utah is the best program in the Pac-12, right? I mean, right now they are the best program in the Pac-12. At least over the past three or four years, they have become the preeminent program in the Pac-12. They, now, they still don't carry that much cachet, but in terms of production on the field, they have been that program over the past couple of years. And the schedule, it's interesting. They do go to Florida week one, and I know that's a tricky spot for them. But that's a game I fully expect Utah to win. In fact, I've already put money on that game in the preseason. I have Utah actually as an underdog. I think I got them at 
uh, plus one and a half in that game to go into the swamp and beat Florida. Florida has a complete overhaul in the coaching staff, brand new coaching staff coming in. Anthony Richardson's almost certainly going to be their guy at quarterback, but he's never really had to be the guy. And they just don't have the established team, the established culture that Utah has. I mean, things got ugly in that locker room last year, guys, or the past couple years. And it's going to take a minute or two for Billy Napier to come in and clean that stuff up. Now, does that mean they are incapable of somehow winning this football game in a one-off situation? No, of course not. They can still win the football game. But I don't understand how in the world, I know it's at the swamp and I know it'll be a rowdy environment. Sure, of course. But I just don't understand how I was able to get Utah as an underdog in that game. Utah is far more established. They have far more returning talent. They've been more successful. They know who they are. They know what they are. Their culture is already built. I don't know how they're the underdog. I just I just don't get that. I know the, the line's moved a little bit. I think they're going to come into Gainesville and just punch Florida in the mouth, and they're going to win that football game. USC is a very intriguing team this year, obviously with all the transfers that Lincoln Riley brought in, Caleb Williams, Mario Williams, Jaden Addison coming in. Those are some talented offensive skill pieces, but I still think there are some questions along both lines of scrimmage, and that's not where you want to have questions when you are playing Utah, and Utah gets USC at home. That's a tough game, probably a toss-up game there, but it's kind of like with Florida. I mean, USC has more talent than Florida, but... Lincoln Riley's still trying to establish his system, his culture in year one. Utah's already been there, done that. It's probably going to be a night game at Utah. Again, USC, weaker in the lines of scrimmage, and that's not a recipe for success against a hard-nosed Utah team. I like Utah to win that game, but that'll probably be a toss-up game, I guess you could say. They do go to Oregon late in the season, but how are we going to sit here and call that a loss after we saw them take Oregon's manhood twice last year. I know it's a new coaching staff. I get that. It's new players they, they brought in the transfer portal. But how are we going to call that a loss right now after what we saw last year between those two teams? I, I just don't understand how you're going to call that a loss. So, so what are their losable games? I, I guess Florida is a losable game. Uh, USC is a losable game. I think they probably win both those games, but they're both losable. At UCLA, I would say is a losable game. At Oregon is a losable game. I think I would call Utah the favorite in that game right now, but it's still a losable game. But that's it. I think that's, if you look at their schedule, what other games are losable games? I mean, to lose this bet, to go under eight and a half wins, they would literally have to lose all of those games that I just identified as the losable games on their schedule. I don't bet on worst case scenarios or best case scenarios. Usually I split the difference. That's how I operate. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh yeah, it's going to be worst case scenario for Utah. Because I think that's worst case scenario. I think eight and four is worst case scenario for Utah this season. I got them going 10 and two. I think this is another easy cover, easy money for you guys. And finally, it is time to wrap this up. The very last team on my list of the top 10 2022 college football win total bets are the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now remember, this is a list. This is not a ranking. I'm not saying Ohio State's first or last on my list. They're just on the list. And I will admit, this is a lofty win total. It is set at 11. So by taking the over, 
I'm saying I think Ohio State is going to go undefeated in the regular season, which is very difficult for any program, no matter how talented you are, especially when you're playing in the Big Ten East like they are. But give me over 11 for Ohio State this season. Now, hear me out on this. Again, I don't usually like betting on teams to go undefeated because I think that's a very, very difficult proposition. And more often than not, teams fall short no matter how talented you are. But this Ohio State team, when you look at what they're bringing back and you look at the rest of the landscape in the Big Ten, I think Ohio State is the clear favorite to win the Big Ten. And I, I think it's certainly feasible that they go undefeated in the regular season. They will easily have a top five offense minimum, probably the best offense in the country, at least on paper coming into this season, but at minimum, a top five offense. That's my expectation. I think it's a very reasonable expectation. In fact, I think they have three legitimate Heisman Trophy candidates on the offense. I think you've got obviously C.J. Stroud, Jackson Smith, and Jigba at, at receiver, who again went for almost 350 in the Rose Bowl against their good Utah defense. Trevion Henderson is an absolute stud at running back. He's explosive. He's got great vision. You give him opportunities, you give him touches, that guy is going to make plays just like he did last year. That's three legit Heisman Trophy candidates right there on offense. And they also have one of the best offensive linemen in the country in Paris Johnson, who's going to be sliding out to a more natural left tackle position this year. So I think he could be a, a potential first round draft. Pick. And I haven't even mentioned Marvin Harrison Jr. or Julian Fleming, who once upon a time a couple years back was the number one receiver coming out of high school. They are loaded on offense. I have zero questions about what they're going to be able to do on offense on that side of the ball, especially with an offensive-minded head coach like Ryan Day. Defense, though, that's a different story. They were not good last year. They really weren't. They were just not a good defense last year. They were eighth in the Big Ten in defense efficiency. They were ninth in the Big Ten in scoring defense. That's just not good enough. That's why they did not get to the playoff despite having the best offense in the country. And that's what they had last year, guys. They had the best offense in the country, but their defense was below average. It was subpar, and that's why they got knocked around by Michigan, lost that football game, and did not end up in the Big Ten championship game, did not end up in the college world playoff. They still got to 10 and 2. They were still good enough to get to that point. And that tells you how good their offense was. I mean, the defense was just not good enough, but they still got the 10 wins in the regular season, losing to Oregon at home and then losing on the road in the big house to Michigan. They got to 10 wins by virtue of their offense. That's how good they were. They had to carry that very porous defense. Now, I, I get that it's hard to improve offensively when you were the best offense in the country last year. I understand that's a that's a tough proposition, right? But that's exactly what I think they're going to do. Jackson Smith and Jigba, I've said a couple times on this episode today, went for 350 versus Utah in the Rose Bowl, guys. He had 100 yards or more and at least nine receptions in each of the last five games this season. He wasn't the top guy coming this season. Remember, that was Garrett Wilson and that was Chris Olave. And those guys were still really good themselves. But Jackson Smith and Jigba late in the season became the dude for them. And then when Garrett Wilson... And Alave didn't play in the Rose Bowl. I mean, it was all Jackson Smith and Jigba. I mean, Marvin Harrison Jr. did some good things as well. But I mean, get 350 guys. That's crazy. Just shattered Rose Bowl records. And then again, you throw in Marvin Harrison Jr., Julian Fleming. That is as good of a receiver group as there is in the country. Almost certainly the best receiver group in the country, at least on paper, coming into this season. And the defense it only needs to make modest improvements, guys. That's the thing. They only need to get slightly better. I'm not asking the Ohio State defense to be a top 20 defense. They don't need to be that. If they can just get back in the top half of the Big Ten, then with that offense, they're going to win 
almost every game they play, if not every game they play. They're going to go 11-1, 12-0 if the defense just makes those modest improvements. And that's where Jim Knowles enters the picture. Ryan Day went out and hired him from Oklahoma State. He turned the Oklahoma State defense into one of the top defenses in the country, and he has been tasked with doing the exact same thing at Ohio State. Now, I do think it's a lot to ask to expect him to turn Ohio State into an elite defense in one year. They do have a lot of talent because they recruit so well, but give him a year or two, and I think he will do exactly that. This year, I do expect him to make significant improvements under Jim Knowles, so I have that much respect for him as a coordinator. So yeah, I do think that they'll be in the top half of the Big Ten in defense, and whether it's defense efficiency, scoring defense, yards per play, you name it, I think they'll be in the top half of the Big Ten. If they can do that with that offense, watch out. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is this for Ohio State. This team is not losing two games with that schedule. They're just not. I know Notre Dame week one is a big time matchup that everyone's going to want to watch and they're going to have a lot of eyes on that game. It's going to be a lot of hype around it, of course, but that's at the horseshoe and it's a Notre Dame team with a coaching change or in a little bit of a, of a transition here. I think Ohio State wins that game fairly easily. Honestly, I really do. I think it's probably a two touchdown win for Ohio State. They get Wisconsin in Columbus. They go to Michigan State, but they are just infinitely more talented than Michigan State. We saw what they did in Michigan State last year. And I know you can't always say you know, what happened last year is going to happen the next year, but there's just a massive talent gap there. Ohio State is clearly the better football team. I don't care that they're going to Michigan State. It doesn't matter. They're going to win that football game. They do have to go to Penn State, which will be a tougher game, but they avoid the wideout. They got fortunate here. This is a TV thing that kind of broke their way. This is going to be the big noon kickoff the weekend that this game is being played, they've already announced that. Fox has already made that announcement. So Penn State had to make a choice. That's clearly the biggest game on Penn State's home schedule. So you would think they would go wide out against Ohio State, right? But the wideout's traditionally been a night thing. It hasn't always been a night game, but more recently it has been. It kind of just pops more at night. It's a more raucous environment. You know how it goes with, with college night games. So Penn State decided, no, we're not going to use the wideout for a noon game. They're going to save it and use it for a night game against Minnesota a couple weeks later. So that kind of worked out in Ohio State's favor. It's still going to be a tough game playing in State College in a stadium that big and that rowdy. It's going to be tough, but it's not as tough if it's at noon as opposed to being a night game with a whiteout going on. And then they close the season, of course, with Michigan at home in a revenge spot. I do think Michigan is still going to be a really good football team this year, but Ohio State, man, you know they want revenge, and that doesn't always matter. What matters more than that is Ohio State's more talented. I think they're going to fix things on defense at least enough this year. This game is in Columbus. I think Ohio State wins this football game, at least as we sit here in July in the preseason. And look, again, as I've said a couple times, I think going undefeated is a very difficult thing for anyone to do, no matter how much talent you have on your football team. That's extraordinarily difficult. It's a big ask. So they might very well drop one game. Very possible. I just don't see them dropping two games in the regular season. I think this is a push at the absolute worst. And just to make you feel a little bit better, if you don't feel good enough already about me talking up Ohio State... They are another one of those seven teams to finish 2021 inside the S&P Top 50 and enter 2022 in the Top 30 in returning production. This was an extraordinarily talented and very, very good football team last year. I think they will be even better this year. I expect them to go 11-1 at worst with a great shot at an undefeated season. And I see them as clearly one of the two or three favorites 
to win the national title in 2022. But all right, guys, that's all I've got for you. That's the list. So to recap, here are my top 10 2022 preseason win total bets. Let's go back to the first episode earlier in the week. Got Oklahoma State under nine. Minnesota over seven. Houston over nine. TCU over six and a half. Arkansas also over six and a half. I love Arkansas over six and a half. And then from this episode, we've got Clemson under 10 and a half. I know the Clemson fans have stopped listening, but I got the Tigers going under 10 and a half. We've got BYU going over seven and a half. Utah going over eight and a half. And NC State also going over eight and a half. Closing things out with Ohio State over 11. So yeah, I went heavy on the overs this year. I've got eight overs and only two unders. That's not always how it works out. But this year, it kind of just worked out that way. I feel really good about each and every one of these bets. I have not bet on all of them, but I have put money down on a number of them. Let's see, at the top of my head, I know I've put money on Arkansas. I put a significant wager on Arkansas over six and a half. I've got money on NC State over eight and a half. I've got another significant bet on BYU over seven and a half. I've got a pretty big one on TCU over six and a half. And I'm heading out on a little vacation tomorrow. And we have a connecting flight in Denver, Colorado. Online sports betting is legal, so I will be placing another wager on Utah to go over eight and a half. I love the state of Georgia, but unfortunately, we have yet to legalize online sports gambling in this state. So I can do it offshore. That's what I do when I'm here at home normally. But whenever I'm in a state where online gambling has been legalized, I certainly take full advantage of that. But it is time for me to get out of here, guys. I got to finish packing, actually. I will have an episode pre-recorded for you guys next week. So if there's any more breaking news on like the conference realignment front, just understand that I'm out of pocket a little bit. I will not be able to record anything. I won't have all my recording equipment with me. I do have some content pre-recorded for you guys. When you launch a podcast, you want to have content, right? I got that stuff for you guys. And then I'll record the second episode as soon as I get back. I get back early Thursday, kind of taking a red eye. I'll be overnight. So I'll be very tired, but I will have some content ready to record for you guys. So that episode will be out next Friday. But I've already got one pre-recorded for you guys that will be out on Monday night, early Tuesday. So look forward to that. But thank you again, guys, for listening. I know this podcast is still very, very new. Thank you for supporting it and giving it a chance. I hope you enjoyed what you've heard. I hope you see what I'm talking about when I say that this podcast has been designed for you guys, for the hardcore diehard fans, and that's never going to change. That's what this podcast is going to be. That's the reason I started this podcast, because I never felt like there's really an outlet for fans like you and me, and I wanted to try to provide that. And if you do enjoy what you've heard of the first couple episodes of this podcast, it would be awesome if you would really help me out and give the show a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you can give us a rating and review. If you can give us those five stars, that's a huge help in kind of launching this podcast, getting things off the ground, attracting new listeners. I would greatly appreciate that. And also, follow us on social media, on Twitter, at NoGradPod. Just find us at Never Graduate Podcast on Instagram. And more than that, like, retweet, comment, 
Don't be a stranger. Interact with me on Twitter, guys. I want your thoughts. I want to have that interaction with you. I want to have that community with you guys on social media. And you interacting with me there certainly is another way to help the podcast grow. So I just thank you guys so much in advance for that and for listening to the show. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, tell everyone, tell your neighbor, anyone, everyone who would be remotely interested in some hardcore college ball talk. Let them know about this show. But thank you guys. Have an awesome weekend. I'm Tyler, and I'll see you guys next time.